Good morning. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. Let's see, do I know everybody? Anyways, if I don't, my name's Ted. Just want to see if I had to say that or not. Welcome. It's good to see you all. We are continuing in our study of Nehemiah. So if you would turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, and you'll see the title, or you should see the title up on the screen behind me Gospel Obedience Leads to Gospel Opposition. And maybe just now, a question into your mind, Ted, are we not in the Old Testament? Are we not in Nehemiah? Are we not discussing the building of a wall? What does that have to do with the gospel? How could you name this sermon that? My friends, everything in the Bible has to do with the gospel. Think about this. Before sin, Adam and Eve needed one verse, just one verse. Don't eat of the tree. Since sin, look what we need, right? makes a point all by itself. But the entire Bible is about the glorious rescue mission of our creator God, which of course we know climaxed in Jesus Christ coming to die in our place and to defeat death. But even if you look just at Ezra and Nehemiah, look at these hundred years and the four major events that, that this records for us, the return of the covenant people of God to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple and, and worship starting again, Nehemiah now in our, in our part of the book, the, the wall being constructed, and what we'll see in a couple weeks when Ezra and Nehemiah do a great team up to teach the word of God and, and, and bring them back into communion, that's all about the gospel. This is preparing even for what will come 400 years later with the birth of our Messiah. It's all about the gospel. And even if you read, which I asked you to do a few weeks ago, read the three prophets that are associated with the events of these hundred years, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all three have numerous prophecies of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Even uh, one I have for you today, just an example. I, I had a hard time choosing. There's so many great prophecies during this period of time. Look at Malachi 3.1. He says, behold, this is is God speaking through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that talking about? John the Baptist. But let's continue. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That, of course, is about Jesus Christ himself. It's all about the gospel. God is working even through the construction of a wall, as we'll see today, to prepare for Jesus Christ. So gospel obedience, when we obey what God has given us for our part in the Great Commission and his redemptive uh, work will always lead to gospel opposition. In fact, you could say, hey, this is how we know we're doing it right. We're not looking for the opposition, but when it comes, it's confirmation that we're being obedient, that we're doing what God has for us. Look at the slide up on the screen next. This is one that I meant to show last week. I'm glad I forgot it. It was in the application section because this helps us to see how gospel obedience works. And it's very simple. Uh, Vision, communication, execution, and then the one we're adding this week, expectation. And so vision 
Uh, it comes by the means of grace. As we connect with God in prayer, as we're in his word, uh, as we're worshiping him. I remember uh, two, a little over two years ago when really the church of Blue Ridge was Robert's family and my family. We had just met and we worked together for several weeks to hammer out the vision God had given to us. And it was because we were praying, we were in his word, and we came up with this vision. And then communication. Uh, we saw that in Nehemiah chapter 2. He's communicating to those in authority above him. And then he's communicating to the people that will have to help him fulfill uh, the vision. Uh, so that involves communication. Next, you see execution. That's where we're at this week. Chapter 3 especially, execution. Where you have this plan from God. Uh, you, you've taken the time to pray and, and get that. You've communicated it to all the people involved. Now let's do it. Let's put it into action. We'll see that in chapter three very briefly. And then the one that I've really added this week, I never really thought about it, but we've got to include it, is the expectation of, obedience, of opposition. Opposition will come if we're being faithful to what God's given us to do. And would you not rather be ready for the, the opposition ahead of time than simply waiting to react to what comes. And we're gonna see a little bit of both today, but I think it's really important that we understand opposition is inevitable. And we'll talk more about that, of course, in chapter four. There is the church at Blue Ridge vision. We have some new faces. I think it's important to pull it back out. This is the vision that God gave to Robert and I that we uh, have been sharing with you all. You'll see it on our website and our documents. And it's what God's given us. It's something we'll never, ever be able to fulfill. It's something that should keep us occupied and busy as a church uh, until we go home or until the Lord goes back that we be a people transformed continually by the word of God, making disciples for his glory here in Blue Ridge, but not just in Blue Ridge, around the world. And so today we're going to see that gospel obedience continue, and we're going to see it opposed by God's enemies. In fact, I should have just read my big idea. I always do that. I kind of say it, and then I say it again. But nonetheless, here's the big idea. Today, after leading God's people to execute God's plan, Nehemiah will appropriately respond to four threats of opposition from God's enemies. Let's pray. Father, we come back before you today in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege of gathering together corporately as our missional community groups come together to see uh, members from the other groups. We have guests and visitors come to hear from you, Lord, to worship you in the many ways that we do during this time. And now we've arrived at this part of worship where we ask you to speak, Lord. Ask you to speak through your word and through your human instrument to, to touch our hearts, to change the way we think, whether it be obedience as a believer or as lost people obediently repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit moves and has his way amongst this group of people today for your glory, for your work here in Blue Ridge and around the world. Lord, expand your kingdom and let us be an obedient part of it, just as we'll see Nehemiah and the Jews today. Again, thank you for your word, which witnesses your work throughout human history. We praise you and give you glory. Amen. Okay, so turn to chapter 3. We're actually not going to read chapter 3. If you look at chapter 3, maybe some of you went through it this week in your cell group time, it's a list. And typically when we're reading the Old Testament and we get to a list, we kind of skip it, right? It's, it's kind of monotonous. Uh, but this would be a mistake if we were to completely skip chapter 3. And you'll see the title slide up there, just point number one, 
obedience, right? We've seen the vision come to fruition. We've seen the vision communicated. Now we see them obey and build the wall. But if we were to skip chapter three, it would be a mistake. In fact, a missionary doctor named Vigo Olson, he was a missionary to Bangladesh for 30 years, taking the gospel to the Muslims there and did a lot of work, did a lot of translation And at one point in his ministry, a storm came. I think it was like a a cyclonic storm came and destroyed 10,000 homes in Bangladesh where he was ministering. And do you know what chapter in the Bible God used to inspire him to set a vision to rebuild those homes? Nehemiah chapter 3. In fact, here's a quote from his writings. He says, I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. There were priests, priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or carpenters. So we shouldn't skip the list. We should take the time to see, because you never know how God might move. But although we're not going to read through this list, I have a a few slides here that will just kind of show us the, the big parts, the big observations that we can make if we take the time. First of all, look at this map slide that you'll see on the screen. And this is just a visual representation of how perfectly arranged this chapter is. If you look at each one of these families or individuals that were building and where they were building, it takes you around the wall in perfect order. Uh, And here you see a color-coded map uh, that shows where each family was stationed, each group of people, each group of tradesmen to build their part on the wall. It's a beautifully beautifully ordered chapter. Whoever took this down really focused on the detail of where each and every group of people were uh, to work together to build that wall. Uh, The next slide you'll see is really just the observations I made. I encourage you, take the time to go through this, see what you discover. I discovered that you have religious and political leaders helping out, and I think that's so important. It wasn't just a work uh, for the work, you know, the blue-collar force. Uh, We see the high priest, even the first verse, verse one, the high priest is out there himself working and helping to rebuild the wall. So you have religious leaders like him. You also have five different rulers of various districts in Judah and the people that were with them working. Another thing is you have tradesmen and merchants out there serving as well. You have uh, goldsmiths and perfumers who uh, left their businesses, if you will, left their trade for a period of time to help out and build the wall. Uh, you have the genius of Nehemiah stationing uh, residents near their home. What better place? Hey, you live next to the wall. Maybe you live on the wall. We'll let you build. And, and really how good that wall is working and how well it is able to defend your home, first and foremost, is really up to you. So that genius aspect that people would be more motivated to do a great job on the section of wall near their house. Uh, brilliant. Also, you have people who were entrusted with key historical and religious sites, like the tombs of David, uh, near the temple itself, working together. Uh, You see Jews that came from Judah, the surrounding, uh, you know, right around Jerusalem. You also have Jews that lived far away, who would, like Gibeonites, who would come from some distance to help out. And it made me think of our runner's camp this summer. We had believers coming from, of course, our church, making up most of the workforce. And then we had believers coming from three of our support, I think three or four of our supporting churches, one as far as Nashville, Tennessee, to come help us build our wall of runner's camp. So what a great example. Then you have a, a group pulling double duty, the Tekoaites in particular. Tekoa, you might recognize that, was a city five miles south of Bethlehem. It's where the, uh, the famous Amos, Amos the prophet was from. You guys can laugh. That was like a joke there. 
famous Amos was from Tekoa. And they came and they finished their section and they started building another section. Uh, Also, you'll notice that the nobles, the aristocrats from Tekoa, didn't want to come. So you do see one group that wasn't willing. Uh, And then finally, you see women and children helping out as well. Nobody was exempt. Everybody pitched in, regardless of their experience, to help pull this thing off. In fact, uh, Edwin Yamauchi says this, what an inspiring example of what can be done when God's people work together. And I added that in there too, what Paul had to say in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, the church, let us use them. We cannot fulfill God's will for our church if, not, if everyone is not helping in some regard. All hands on deck is definitely an aspect of church ministry that we must say over and over. And here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we have serve teams. Uh, many of you, most of you are helping out on one and in many cases more of these serve teams. And one thing we're going to do in two weeks, two weeks from today, after the service, we're going to have representatives for each of the four major serve teams uh, stationed in the back of this room to answer questions that you might have uh, and even to sign up and help with one of these serve teams. And uh, worship, of course, is a big one. Uh, and, and there's several things under each umbrella. So with worship, don't just think, you know, singing or playing an instrument. Maybe it's sound or audiovisual. Also, we have kids, very important one that, that Carrie Lee leads, and I know she needs some help. So kids. Also, we have hospitality, and I can tell you uh, my wife and mother-in-law work in that. We need some help with hospitality. Uh, who likes breakfast, by the way, on Sunday morning? Two hands? Come on. We're Baptists, Right. Uh, hospitality needs some help. And then we have first impressions. And first impressions is anything to do with, with someone getting from the parking lot into this room. And we need help in all four of those areas. So mark your calendars two weeks after the service. You'll have an opportunity to learn more and even sign up. But we, of course, expect our members to be helping with at least one serve team. But we also invite those of you who are not members, but kind of in the membership process, to jump in now. There's no need to wait until you're officially a member. So uh, be ready for that in a couple weeks. But again, chapter three, great chapter. You see this obedience, this execution of the vision, execution of the plan. The wall is being built. Gospel obedience. And as I've said already, when you obey it, you should look out for opposition. And that's where we're going to go next with chapter four. And you'll see the slide up on the screen, opposition. We're going to see the enemy thwarted. The enemy thwarted. And there's four threats, as I said. You'll see them listed here. And we're going to go through them very quickly. And we're going to see this beautiful pattern of opposition coming, but then God's leader, Nehemiah, and the people responding in such a way that God's work was not threatened. And the threat, the enemies, are thwarted. And this is a great, great display of this. And we see this throughout Scripture. But pay attention, because as we continue uh, faithfully as a church, we will run into opposition. I promise it. I guarantee it. Opposition will come in some form or fashion from either outside the body or, what concerns me the most, inside the body. We're going to see both types here, as you can see up on the screen. External words, external attack, internal despair, and internal Apathy. So let's begin reading in chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 to, to see this first threat, external words. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, 
he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then Nehemiah responds, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now, again, we met these guys last year. I introduced you to them. I said that you were going to see these, these jokers come up over and over, especially these two, Sanballat and Tobiah, all the way through Nehemiah, constant thorns in his side. And I think one of the first things we have to recognize is when God's people are being faithful to the gospel mission, who really allows for the opposition to happen but God himself? Does not God allow opposition? When we understand the sovereignty of God in that regard, it helps us to understand what he's doing. He's teaching us to learn to trust him, to have faith in him as we continue to obey. But Sanballat, as I mentioned, is the governor of Samaria. So that's the province directly north of Judah. And he asked this series of five rhetorical questions as a way to uh, attack the confidence and the morale of the people of God. Verbal attacks have the potential to stop and to destroy a great work like this. And that's what he's hoping to do. And you'll see, you know, these questions, uh, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but a few of them are important. He, he says these feeble Jews, that's, that's an attack on the fact that Jews, the Jewish people are so small now. They used to be this great mighty nation. Now they're just uh, several thousand. And that was a, probably really hurt for them to be called feeble and weak. He says, will they worship? Will they sacrifice? He's essentially saying, will they pray the stones up? And he's, he's attacking the work. He's jeering them. And somehow these threats made it back to Nehemiah because he recorded them in his memoirs. And then Tobiah, almost like the, the corny sidekick, kind of says, yeah, and if a fox jumps on it, he's going to break it, right? Trying to be funny. Well, archaeologists have found Nehemiah's wall. And do you know Nehemiah's wall was nine feet thick? Not talking about height, nine feet thick. So I don't think a fox would have done that. But look at Nehemiah's response. And this is really interesting. You might, when I read this, you might have said, man, that seems kind of mean. And look, Nehemiah understands the gospel, does he not? Look what he prays to God. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. This is incredible because he understands the gospel. He understands what it means to be in covenant with God, to have your sin blotted out, to have your sin covered, right? That's what happens when we repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's saying something very strong here. He's saying, God, don't atone for their sins. Don't forgive them. Don't blot out their sins. This is very strong language. And you might be thinking, didn't Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek, right? What's going on here? What Nehemiah is praying is actually a very legitimate prayer. He's praying for divine judgment upon God's enemies. When Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek, or Paul in Romans 12, not to take vengeance, that's personal vengeance. That's when uh, it becomes a personal grudge for us, and then it becomes sin for us to retaliate and take revenge. That's what those men are teaching, but what Nehemiah is doing is praying for divine judgment upon God's 
enemies. Look what David does in, in Psalm 69. Even, even a little bit stronger than what Nehemiah says. He says, add to them, his enemies, punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So a couple application points really quickly and we'll move on. First and foremost, how many of you like it when people verbally attack or assault or say things about you? Nobody's hand is up, of course. We don't like it. Now, if you're anything like me and people do that, I see some brothers hitting each other over here. So thanks for that. that right on, right? I had five brothers. I get it. So when that happens, the temptation is what? To give it right back, to seek revenge. And I think as believers, this is an area where we have to be above reproach, where if we take Jesus' words, right, turn the other cheek in that regard, not to take vengeance, not to fire back, but like Nehemiah, say, you know what? I'm just going to pray. Lord, uh, I give this over to you. I surrender this to you. Uh, you take out any vengeance if it's needed and let me not. So I think this is an area where we can, I know I can really learn from. Uh, the second thing I think it's important to point out is, really it's a question, what is your knee-jerk reaction when you face opposition or even adversity in life? If you're anything like me, my knee-jerk reaction is to do something about it, first and foremost. And that's not bad, but what my knee-jerk reaction is not, like we're going to see with Nehemiah over and over, is going before God. The very first thing he does over and over in today's passage is he takes the issue before God. And I'm a doer. I like to fix things. And so I, I was really convicted by this this week. And if, if you're like me, let this convict you as well. And let us covenant together to be men and women of prayer before action. Now, both are important. But let us be like Nehemiah and pray first. Let that become our knee-jerk when we go up or, or run up against opposition. So we've seen this, um, this uh, verbal attack. The second threat is the threat of external attack. So it's not verbal now. Now it's physical. Physical external violence is now what's going to be threatened. And we're going to see that as we pick up in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them both day and night. Now, one of the... Uh, the hardest things to overcome, and we see this in Christianity a lot today, is entrenched status quo. How many of you have been in a church where there's been entrenched status quo? Tradition that isn't necessarily biblical, uh, kind of like the way we've always done it, that it's so hard to break people out of that. When I arrived at uh, Pendleton Street Baptist Church back in 2007, uh, I was hired by Pastor Marty Price. Many of you met him at runner's camp. And this was a church that had gotten away from Scripture. Again, still full of good people, but had gotten away from Scripture, what it means to be a biblical church for over 30 years. He got hired, and he was able to get me in. And now you have a staff, and we had a few other staff members too, that were committed to the Scriptures. And I was not prepared for the fights of the next three years, how hard it is to overcome entrenched status quo. And that's what's happening here. Remember I mentioned this last week. 
Judah didn't really have, they had a governor, but it would have been a weak governor, a puppet for these other ones. And so Sanballat, Tobiah as governors of, uh, of regions that were close by who had relationships into the priestly line of, of uh, Jerusalem, they were used to a certain level of status quo that they got to come in and throw their weight around and have some say in what happened in Jerusalem. That has ended with Nehemiah's arrival. He is now the new governor, and he is not one who leads from behind. He is a godly leader, and that's where this anger and this fury comes from, from these men. And as we look at verse 7, it's not just the threat of physical attack. They form an alliance of four different regions, four different surrounding provinces. Jerusalem is completely surrounded. Look at verse 7. We know that Sanballat is to the north with Samaria. Tobiah is the governor of Ammon to the east, the Ammonites. And then you have the Arabs. We met Geshem, a tribal chieftain uh, who led a, a confederation of Arab tribes to the south of Judah. And now we see the, the residents of Ashdod. That You might remember that name. Ashdod was one of the chief, chief Philistine cities. That's to the west. That's on the coast. So all four points of the map, Judah is completely surrounded by enemies who now want to come in and fight. If you were a worker who had left your home outside of the walls to come and help rebuild the wall, how hard would it be for you to stay put hearing about all these threats now of four different armies coming to fight you and stop the work? If you can imagine that, you would know what it's like to be a Jew at this time. Pretty scary. Pretty scary indeed. But look at Nehemiah's response. Again, we see this verse. This verse is actually very popular because of this perfect balance between prayer and action. Look at verse nine. We prayed to our God, number one, and then we set a guard as a protection. So he pretty much puts a 24-hour security watch, kind of like DEFCON 2, right? You watch those military movies. He sets DEFCON 2. Okay, we're just gonna start out 24-hour security uh, around uh, the wall just to keep an eye out for what's going on, uh, just to make sure we don't get ourselves in trouble. When I was in uh, the Coast Guard in New York City, I was only there one year, and yet four newsworthy events happened while I was there. We had a visit from a Russian battleship, which was really cool because the Cold War had ended, and we haven't had a Russian Navy ship in our waters until then for decades, right, since kind of before the Cold War. We had uh, the Muslim uh, terrorists try to blow up the Twin Towers in 1993. Many of you were probably too young to remember that, but it was a kind of a car bomb. That was their first attempt to blow it up. That happened while I was there. We had a Chinese vessel called the Golden Venture ground itself full of hundreds of, of Chinese slaves, really, who were being smuggled in to work off their debt. And I got to be a part of all of these. It was like really, really exciting. And then a fourth one that happened was uh, back then Haiti had a, a president and a general who were at odds, and they were both fighting for control of the country, and they had peace talks on our little Coast Guard island off the tip of Manhattan called Governor's Island. They thought it would be safe there to have the men live there and meet there. But what that meant for us in the, in the small boat station is we had to provide a 24-hour watch where we were on the boats, like eight-hour shifts at a time. It was the most boring part of my job ever. But that's what's happening here. Nehemiah has the wisdom to put this in place, this, this perfect plan. And here's a slide up on the screen that helps us uh, to see what type of action we might need. We pray, absolutely pray, but then what we want to do is take action. Not just any action, 
but common sense, obvious action that provides a solution to the problem at hand, to the threat. Uh, And also one for us as a church that continues the carrying out of God's plan. That's what we want to do. It's important. Not just a simple reaction, but action that allows us to, again, meet the need, address the issue, but not, not stop whatever it is God's called us to do, right? Keep the plan going. Keep the wall building going. And that's important because we're going to see that over and over as we continue. So we've seen the first two threats, both external, right? First one was verbal. Second one was physical. The third one now, and the fourth two, come on the internal side. Uh, And the first one will be internal despair that we will see. And I have to say, I mentioned this earlier, but here in our context, being American Christians in the United States, really the external is not much of an issue yet. Maybe someday, right? Nothing like what Nehemiah and the Jews are facing back then. Nothing like many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are facing today, maybe in a Muslim or communist or Hindu context where where violence is happening. But the one thing, the one brand of opposition that we do run the risk of, and I think it's probably the most dangerous kind, is internal opposition. Internal opposition from within that creates division to the unity of the body and essentially stops the mission of God. And so that's what we're going to see the next two is that internal opposition. And we, we talked about this in the book of Acts, if you remember. And one of the things I said was external opposition actually forces us closer together, forces us closer to God, and in the end makes us stronger. But internal opposition destroys from the inside out. And that's what we'll see as we continue reading in this passage. Let's pick up at verse 10 as we begin to see uh, this internal despair take place. In Judah, again, this is in the context of the external physical threat, right? Uh, In fact, uh, one great quote is this from uh, Mervyn Brenneman. External pressure amplifies internal weakness. External pressure amplifies internal weakness. So verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Back to Nehemiah's response now. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the peoples by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And so we see in this two types of internal uh, despair. The first one comes from the Jews inside the walls, the actual builders. Now, what's really neat, you would never know this in the English translation, but verses 10 and 11 in the Hebrew are actually in the form of a poetic lament. So what that tells us is this was actually a song, if you will, that they were singing. It's a four stanza song of lament, uh, kind of a a morale attacking song that they were singing that was spreading around uh, kind of a jingle, if you will. And Nehemiah wrote it down in his memoirs. And so there's despair happening amongst the Jews that were in the walls. And then we see Jews on the outside kind of coming and saying, hey, come home now. We're hearing these threats. 
All right, you're in danger. All these people are going to come in and attack the city. You've got to come back home. So now you have Jews coming in from the outside regions trying to get their family members to return to a place of safety. And what I love here about Nehemiah, again, we've seen it twice already. Nehemiah was not a leader who led from behind, right? This is a point where it would have been so easy to kind of hide and, and, and go, go behind where no one sees you. But he doesn't do that. Look at verse 13. He redirects all of this despair, all of this fear back to the mission. He goes from DEFCON 2 to DEFCON 3, right? Not a 24-hour security detail is not enough. We're, we now need an armed militia. We need more, and we need to place them in all the critical places where the wall has not yet been finished. And so he puts them now with their weapons, with their bows, with their swords. He has them fight in, in clans. Anyone seen Braveheart? Right? It was pretty hard to organize the Scottish clans because they don't like each other. But if you can get them together... They, they blow away the English armies. Why? Because they're fighting as families. They're fighting as tight-knit families together. And so it's genius that Nehemiah would station them, these little militia clans, if you will, to fight together. And again, we see this man who led from the front, who was so prepared for each and every threat that came upon the Jewish people. But the most important thing he does isn't sending the militia out, but look what he says in verse 14 and, and, uh, and, yeah, verse 14. Remember the Lord, right? Remember the Lord. The Lord fights for us. Don't forget that. Again, you see this perfect balance between dependence upon the vertical but horizontal common sense to do some things we should do. Too many times we go to the extremes. We either sit and pray and don't do the common sense action and wonder why God didn't show up. And then other times we, we don't consult God and we go do a foolish thing and make a mistake. But with Nehemiah, it's perfectly balanced, perfect in the middle. And the best thing he could say, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He will fight for us. That's essentially what he's saying. But that wasn't it. He even tells them, remember God, but remember who you're fighting for. Your kids, your wives, your homes, your families. Right, And they were ready to go. They had a leader who inspired and encouraged them and above all, reminded them that this is God's fight. This is God's mission. God will always protect his mission. So if we as Christians are in his mission and we're sure of that and we run up against opposition, yes, we need to do some things to, to protect the mission, but more, more than anything, we need to depend upon God who at his time will show up to fight our battles. Turn with me quickly to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. It's one of my favorite, by the way, this is one of my favorite prophets. Of all, you gotta admit, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, the man with the most style was Elisha. Elisha just had, he hardly even spoke. He didn't need to. It's like he just had this, this style about him, the way he carried himself and the things that he was able to do. And what's happening in chapter 6, this is so funny. Uh, the king of Syria is trying to attack the northern tribes of Israel, but Elisha keeps giving them intel based on his prophetic ability from God as to where they're going to attack from. So Israel is always able to move their armies, and the king of Syria couldn't take him out. And so he finally found out, hey, there's this prophet, this man of God, that's telling them every one of our moves before we make it. And so he says, well, let's go take out the man of God. And so king of Syria takes his armies and surrounds the village that Elisha's in. And then we pick up in verse 15. When the servant 
of Elisha, the servant of the man of God, rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And here's just imagine Elisha sitting back, you know, so cool, not upset, not, not worried. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. At this point, the servant's like, There's nobody with us. What are you talking about? Look at verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The fight is God's. What a beautiful passage. Yeah, the army of Syria was there, but what they didn't see was the angel army all around them, chariots of fire. And so Nehemiah, knowing that, encourages the Jews Don't be afraid. He will fight for us. But at the same time, fight for your family. Fight for your home. A balanced leader uh, like Nehemiah is hard to find. What a man of God and what an example we have here. Now, again, one application point I really want to hit before we move on to the final section is protecting the unity of the church. I mentioned that uh, what will destroy the church of Blue Ridge, if anything, will be from inside, will be a threat that comes up from the inside. And therefore, I wanted to point out a few things about our responsibility to protect the unity of the church, namely the church at Blue Ridge. First and foremost, it's everyone's responsibility, everybody. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, how short you've been a believer, what your role here is in the church. You could be a pastor or the guy making coffee. Uh, In the Coast Guard, uh, we had all these different jobs, but everyone's responsibility was law enforcement. So if all hands were called on deck, general quarters, everyone had a role in law enforcement, the greater mission. And so one of our great missions on the inside is protecting the unity. Second, this helps me a lot. Somebody steps on your toes in the church, don't assume the worst, right? Give the other person the benefit of the doubt every time. Just And this is, a, this is that one another love, right? Wouldn't you want somebody to give you the benefit of the doubt if you stepped on their toes? Same thing. Let's extend grace. That's how we extend grace to each other, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Because if you're anything like me, if you start to assume the worst, next thing, the person's a terrorist all of a sudden, right? You just, you go so down and, oh my goodness, look at all that they're doing. It's all about me. And we can't let us, we can't get to that stage. The second thing is we need to forgive them as God in Christ forgave you. How can, you guys know the parable in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant? How can we receive the forgiveness of a million dollars debt, but then get upset at our brother or sister because they took our lunch money? All right, it doesn't make sense. Let us not be hypocrites. Let us forgive as we have been forgiven. Second, or or fourth thing, communicate with the offender, not others. And I'm as guilty of this as you are. It's so easy to go and communicate with someone. Can you believe that person stepped on my foot? They just came right with a heel first, too, just right on my toes, right? And we start slandering them. Even if you come to Robert or I, uh, what are we going to do? But we're going to say, first question, have you spoken to them yet? That's the first question we're going to ask you, right? And we're going to be there to help you know, along the process. But first and foremost, go talk to the person that's offended you. Let them know. They may not have a clue what they did to you. And then love and be patient with each other. That's so important. So important that we extend that patience and that love uh, as we're directed so many places in the New Testament to do, all the one another passages. And then this one's really important. Maintain, and I know this is an application point every week and it will be, maintain daily vertical communion with God. 
If you are in right relationship with God and you're, you're spending time with him each day intentionally in his word and in prayer, then when the horizontal foot, foot stomping happens, you're going to be in a much better place to deal with it biblically than if you're not. Trust me, I know this from experience as well. Having that vertical connection helps us. Again, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Commandments 1 through 4, vertical. Commandments 5 through 10, horizontal. So important to have that. Uh, so very important for us today. Now we're going to see the final threat, uh, also internal in nature, and this is the threat of internal apathy, internal apathy. Now, uh, as you'll see here when we start reading again, the opposition has given up. The external opposition has given up. And what the genius of Nehemiah here is not to just let things go back to, to they were before all this, but to now be proactive in preparing for this ever to happen uh, again. And as I studied for this, I thought about the event of 9-11. We talk a lot about 9-11. And in my position, as somebody who grew up in the 80s and then was a young adult in the 90s and, and uh, you know, mature, well, I don't know about how mature, but a 20-something, uh, almost 30-something adult when 9-11 happened, uh, I was never able to go back to the things, to how things were before. In fact, I would say from 1983, when Reaganomics finally started to work, uh, that ended about 20 years, of, uh, 25 years of just brokenness in our country. If you go through all the stuff in the 60s and in the 70s, the economic uh, recession. So from 1983 to 9-11, we just kind of got used to how things were. And it, and it was this false sense of security, right? And, and financial uh, growth and all this and that. And then 9-11 happened and it was like, oh yeah, there's a world out there. And, our, and in some ways, our world's never been the same. And it would have been so foolish of us after 9-11 had subsided just to go back to the way they were, but that didn't happen. As a nation, we put safeguards in place. We changed things. It became more difficult to travel, and rightly so. And so with that, Nehemiah, uh, again, the threat's gone. And now the temptation is just to pretend it's not going to happen again. The temptation is apathy. And a wise leader like Nehemiah will proactively protect his people from getting back, going to an apathetic state. So let's pick up reading in verse 15 and uh, finish out the chapter. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, again, that physical attack, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. That's not the end, though. I love this. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is greatly and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon 
at his right hand. So I want to show you, I, I put all this into a slide. I wanted to show you Nehemiah's proactive measures. Everything we just read, but in a condensed form uh, so that we could go through and see what he did. And again, they've had to react to these threats so far. Now there's a break. Let's put some proactive measures in place. Let's prepare in case it ever happens again. Great wisdom. The first thing we see him do in, in verse 16 is he leveraged his own servants for the dual mission. There's now two missions, right? I guess you could say this is DEFCON 3 still, maybe four. But there's two missions. We've got to get the wall finished. But we can't, it's a little bit of a graphic image, but we can't be caught with our pants down next time, right? Let's be prepared. And so Nehemiah takes the first step. He takes his own servants. These are young men that may have come with him from uh, Babylon or from Susa to help out. These may have been some of the soldiers that uh, the king of, of uh, Persia sent with him. But he takes his servants and he cuts them in half. One, he dedicates them to the construction effort on the wall. The other half become armor bearers. Their job is to hold all the weapons so that uh, people would have a place to go, kind of a cachet of weapons uh, strategically stationed around Jerusalem. The second thing he does, I love this, he takes the leaders of Judah. He says, guess what? You guys aren't exempt. You're going to be helping out too. You may not want to get your hands dirty, but we got work for you. So he takes the leaders and he makes them a second layer of defense behind the workers. They would be like security, kind of keeping an eye. They didn't have to build the wall, but they could just simply be defense and be on lookout in case something happened. The third thing he does, and this is very creative, he arms both types of laborers. Apparently there were two types of laborers uh, helping the wall construction. Uh, there was the the burden carrier, right? This would be like the intern, right? The, uh, the helper. This is the person who their job was to continually go back and forth from the supply pile uh, to wherever the wall construction was happening. When I worked for uh, Bartron Builders, uh, that's what I was. I was like a carpenter's assistant. I didn't have any skill, but yeah, I could go pick up a two by four or a sheet of plywood, right? That's what these guys are doing. But they're going to carry a weapon in one hand and then carry whatever they can manage with the other. So that's what they're doing to fulfill the dual Mission. The, the Hebrew word for weapon there is actually projectile. So the weapon would not have been a sword, but a spear. Uh, they would have had the spear. And then, you know, the problem is they can only carry half as much. But, but again, at least they're ready. They have a weapon uh, to prepare in case anything happened. Uh, the other person was a builder. So the builder needed both hands. They were the one actually at the wall, taking the materials and constructing the wall, putting it back together. So they needed to work with both hands. So they had a sword on their side. In case the trumpet blast came, they could then help. So one set of workers with a spear in their hand, the other with a sword. And uh, a neat connection here, I didn't even know this. Robert actually taught me this. I have uh, taught Nehemiah before. I've studied Charles Spurgeon. And if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher in the late 19th century, he wrote a publication called The Sword and the Trowel. So it's the, the sword and then the bricklaying tool that, you know, you put the, the mortar on. And, and the idea there is that we both need to fight, be ready to fight, but also continue to work. And if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, he was blowing the whistle on the problem of theological liberalism, which was attacking the church in England. A lot of people ignored him. But he wrote this publication to help spread the word and raise the alarm. Hey, we're in danger. The church is under attack and it is being demolished. Uh, and so he gets that from here, from this, this dual mission, sword in one hand and the tool of ministry in the other. So what a beautiful, creative picture we have of that here. 
Uh, the next thing he does, he develops an emergency broadcast system. You remember the days, those of you who were older, when there was no cable and you had five channels, and they would do the monthly emergency broadcast where you get that loud beep? I think some channels still do it today, and your show's interrupted for like five minutes. I couldn't stand that as a kid. That's what's happening here. It's an emergency broadcast system. All right, there's going to be a guy with me that has a trumpet. It's really the shofar. You've seen the, the ram horn shofar. Maybe there were other trumpets around Nehemiah, or around the, the Jerusalem area. And if you hear it, if you hear someone blow the shofar, everybody get their weapon and come on. That's where the fight is, right? So brilliant, brilliant plan of communicating uh, when, when bad things would happen, when they'd be under attack. Uh, the fifth thing we see here, he ordered the laborers to spend the night inside the walls. Again, we, we all work hard. Some of you have very hard, laborious jobs. Don't you love to come home to your own bed at night and get that refreshing night's sleep? Imagine if you had to sleep where you work, though. Imagine if your boss said, hey, we got a lot to do this week. Just bring your sleeping bag. You're going to sleep on the floor right next to your truck or right next to your, your workstation, right? Wouldn't that be hard? That's kind of what's happening here. They couldn't go home. They had to spend the night. And, and I guarantee you, they weren't getting the rest they needed. They weren't sleeping as long or as soundly as they would have at, in their bed at home. Uh, many of you know, when I was in college, I did something crazy. I took a full-time job at a group home watching mentally challenged adults, and my shift was midnight to eight. So I'd do a little work when I got there, and then I could sleep four hours. Uh, but usually those hours were interrupted because the guys would wake up and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And then I would go to college during the day, which was, you know, full time. So I don't know how in the world I did it, but I can at least relate with, with what it means to try to work when you don't have that, that restful night. So these guys are sacrificing greatly, uh, again, to finish the project, but also to defend the project against further threats. And then the final thing we see, which is, again, another great hallmark of a great leader, he included himself and his resources for the mission. You see that in the final verse, verse 23, he said, even myself, my brothers, my servants, the soldiers who are with me, we didn't even take our clothes off. You know, we just worked, kind of smelled pretty bad in Jerusalem those days, but they, they worked through, they kept their weapon with them, and they were ready for whatever might happen. So again, what a great example we have, not just of, of a leader, but of a God who fights, who fights our enemies as we continue to obey his will his plan. And so praise God for this example of Nehemiah. And, and I would encourage you for further study, just go back and maybe write out all four of Nehemiah's responses to these four threats and just see uh, just, again, that vertical as well as horizontal, horizontal, perfectly balanced, the dependence upon God, and yet common sense strategy, common sense action to confront the problem and prevent this threat from actually destroying the mission of God. This is definitely a passage we need uh, to be familiar with and to come back to as we serve God in the various ways we do as a church and as individuals. So uh, just a, another application point for us, final application, and it's really another question. If we think of the, the slide I showed you at the beginning, you know, vision, communication, execution, and that final one, expectation. If we say, hey, what are some weaknesses at the Church of Blue Ridge that could be exploited with sudden opposition or sudden unexpected realities? Maybe tomorrow we get a phone call that we have to vacate this building, we can't worship here. All right, what, what do we do? You know, 
What are some ways? I think it's the question that we have to ask ourselves, maybe even as families. What are some weaknesses that we have, some stress fractures that we're ignoring in our family that if all of a sudden sudden circumstances came would, would just you know, turn into a huge break, a huge wrecked life for us? What are some things that we can do in peacetime to help protect us when wartime comes? Let us not be caught off guard as a church, as families, or as, and, and, and that might be another aspect too, individually. What sin in your life individually are you allowing to kind of hang around? You know, remember what Solomon says? Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burnt? You know, that sin might seem really little now, but what happens when some, some external circumstance comes and exploits that, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, we're just in the ditch. We're in the ditch. So I think it's important that we, we take this lesson from Nehemiah and apply it and ask those questions as individuals, as families, and even as a church. What can we be doing now to protect ourselves in the future. Because here you'll see in terms of uh, opposition what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Just like that 2 Timothy passage that Micah read, uh, again, persecution is going to come. It's inevitable. The question is, what are we going to do now to prepare for it? And the most important thing we can do is be ready to go vertical and not forget the gospel, not forget the God who is sovereign over us as we continue to serve him. All right, so let's, a uh, quick invitation. I'm going to invite uh, Micah and, and uh, Jim to come back up. We're going to continue to worship in song. But I want to look at one last passage for us. Uh, the, the main invitation for those of you in the church is a call to servant leadership, like Nehemiah. The biblical model for leadership is servant leadership, and we see that in Nehemiah. And another place we see it, and one of our favorite passages is John 13, the foot washing. And after he washes his disciples' feet, including the one who would betray him, look what he says. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. God's calling us to be that kind of leader, to be you know, the one who's first to go to the work, first to serve others. Servant leadership is a beautiful, beautiful uh, model that we have in the scriptures. But this passage isn't just for those of us in the church and Nehemiah's example. But those of you who are not, there's people in this room who are not followers of Christ, who are not born again. And the washing of the feet that took place was the gospel. It was a preview of what he was getting ready to do on the cross, the atoning sacrifice of the perfect son of God for your sins. And even today, will you not let the father, will you not let the Lord wash your feet with the blood of the lamb? and wash away your sins and blot them out and cover them? If you're not a believer in Christ, why not today? Repent, turn from your idols, turn from your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the time of the service where uh, we want to invite you to consider that. And so as we sing these songs, again, for the church, worship, praise God, respond to what he has shown us today, but for the lost, let, let the words that we sing and the scriptures that we've just read penetrate your heart. And if you want to talk more about what it means to be born again, 
again, come talk to me. Come talk to Robert. Come talk to other leaders who you've seen up here giving announcements, some of our small group leaders. Come and share. Don't hold this off because you don't know when he will return and you don't know when you'll go home. Don't let another day go by without having a conversation about the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you today. We thank you that uh, the gospel is throughout, even in this seldom read book of Nehemiah. And what normally we think about as a wall building project, we see gospel obedience. We even see gospel theology because that's what it's all about. This is about the rescue. It's about you bringing men and women and children to faith in Jesus Christ, saving them from their sin as you have so graciously done now for thousands of years. And Lord, we know that there are people in this room who are not yet saved, even our children, Lord. We pray that you would penetrate their hearts, open their eyes, and enable them to repent and believe the gospel, Lord. It, this, is, this is why we do this. This is why we planted a church for your glory and to expand your kingdom to see men and women and children come to faith in Christ. Father, wouldn't you do that today? Wouldn't you lead someone and bring them? Continue to plant, continue to water, and continue to bring harvests of souls to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've had today. Be with us now as we continue to worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.